This podcast is sponsored by Doc2Doc, the personal lending platform designed for doctors by doctors. Doc2Doc believes that traditional lenders overestimate the risk of lending money to doctors, focusing too much on the challenges of their financial past and giving them insufficient credit for the promise of their financial future. On the Herd podcast, our goal is educating, empowering, and engaging our listeners, including doctors, in the best ways that we can. We love what Doc2Doc is doing within our community and encourage you to visit their website at www.doctodoclending.com forward slash FPD. That's www.doc, the number two, doclending.com forward slash FPD to learn more today. A 40-year-old woman suffers from debilitating jaw pain and headaches. She's seen multiple doctors who have told her that she has TMJ dysfunction where the hinge joint of her jaw is inflamed and irritated because she's been clenching her jaw in her sleep. She knows she's been doing this for years and has been working to manage her stress. She uses a special mouth guard at night to sleep, takes muscle relaxant medications to help relieve the pressure in her jaw, and has even done physical therapy to work on movement of her jaw, but she still has pain. She already gets migraines, so the migraines combined with the headache that comes from the jaw clenching together are just unbearable. Are there any options for her jaw pain and her headaches? Welcome to The Hurt by Dr. Mira Kirpaker and Dr. Alopi Patel. We are the female pain docs. This is a platform to contribute to the public discourse on women's pain and general health. We are here to empower women and men to engage in the advancement of their health with discussions of evidence-based medicine, unconventional topics, lifestyle modifications, and more. The views contained in this podcast are our personal views and do not represent the views of our institutions. This does not substitute medical advice. Please be evaluated by a physician if necessary. Welcome back to another episode of the Hurt Podcast, Season 4. So on today's episode... We're going to talk about the treatment of headaches, but specifically with injections for the head and face. Now, this is a little bit of a deviation from our other topics, but we wanted to focus on the procedural aspect of headaches. You know, headaches and facial pain are just such debilitating conditions, and sometimes medicine, lifestyle changes, and other conservative therapies just aren't enough by themselves to manage the pain, and you need something just a little bit more definitive. So with that in mind, I've invited a special guest to join us for today's podcast episode, Dr. Aharon Benalyahu, a board-certified anesthesiologist and interventional pain physician. Dr. Benalyahu attended medical school at Tel Aviv University, followed by residency in anesthesiology at Yale University, and fellowship in pain medicine at NYU Langone. He currently practices in New York City at NYU Langone in pain medicine, with a special focus in craniofacial pain and headache. So welcome, Dr. Belnyahu. So now this is a pretty big topic and can get a little confusing uh, for our listeners. So I think we can start by kind of breaking it down into head and face pain that is more common in women versus men. So what would you say are kind of what is what would be like the top thing that you see in younger women? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, the first thing, uh, or the most common issue that I'd say I'd see in younger women are either migraines or TMJ, uh, pretty equally, uh, depending on really the underlying issue that's going on. So, you know, with migraines, obviously we're focusing on interventional techniques, uh, procedural things. What could you possibly do for migraines to help with the pain? 
Truly migraines, uh, based on the criteria, we would be able to do Botox injections. And Botox injections uh, will help migraines to reduce the amount of medications you take for up to three months uh, at a time. Why three months? The Botox injections last for about two and a half months. And so we try to keep it at about a three month interval in order to allow for the uh, neurons to regenerate and allow for the muscles to regenerate before we proceed with doing injections again. And so that's the recommendation that we've seen uh, through some of the studies in that three month intervals allow for the greatest uh, reduction in migraine headaches during that time period. Now, a question that I get you know, asked by patients a lot or see a lot is when you get the Botox for migraines and you do it every three months, how long do you have to do this for? Is this forever or is this for like a certain amount of time that's recommended for a few years? How, how do you go about this or is that very individual? That's a very great question. I think it's very individualized. Uh, some patients, we notice that after four or five treatments, they seem to do better uh, but a lot of patients we've seen, they tend to have a longstanding history of migraines. Uh, they do require long-term treatment for years. And I think something that we're seeing more and more is that the migraine triggers are things that patients are able to tolerate or deal with more or find or identify in themselves in order to try and reduce some of those triggers so that they have less of the migraines, therefore needing less of the interventions. Nice. And when you do Botox for migraines, um, you know, I've seen protocols with that that involve a bunch of different injections. Is that typically what you do or do you kind of vary it up based on where you think that trigger is coming from? So I individualize a lot of the Botox because the paradigm that's been made for the Botox migraine uh, really covers all the sites that patients may have in terms of migraine triggers. Uh, but a lot of times the patients will identify specific areas of where their triggers are or where we notice the pain migrating to. And so we try to tailor the injections really to the areas where they have these migraine triggers, also reducing the amount of uh, exposure to Botox over the long term. That's excellent to hear because uh, I, I, I definitely feel like uh, whenever I send patients to you or you know to anyone, for example, for Botox for migraines, uh, they'll tell me that they're scared because of the number of injections. And it's good to know that I could reassure them that it's really individualized and it may not be as many for them versus others. Yeah, and we try to do as much as possible to try and reduce the number of injections. Also, you know, uh, we use the smallest needle possible. You know, there's other things that we've been doing, like using a, a, a freezy spray that helps to reduce or kind of numb the feeling of the injections. So really, we try to tailor it to what you're comfortable with. I think that, you know, a lot of patients do uh, feel very scared of, like you said, the number of injections. And so really, I like to work with patients to see what they're comfortable with and make sure that we're doing enough to obviously treat their migraines. But we also don't want to, uh, we want to make it a good experience so that you feel comfortable with the whole, uh, with the whole injection or well, all the injections. Nice. I do find that, and, and you can tell me if you, agree or disagree, I find that a lot of times um, whenever I see patients that, you know, really are saying that they have migraines, it seems to not really be the head necessarily, that sometimes there are a lot of headaches that can be coming from other areas like the neck. Do you find that to be true? Yeah, there's been a lot of uh, new developments, especially looking at 
a lot of the issues with using our phones and looking at computers where there's been a lot of stretching of the neck muscles that kind of push on some of the the nerves that go up to the up from the spine up to the head. And so we're seeing more and more what's called a cervicogenic headache, basically a headache that starts in the neck itself. And a lot of these patients uh, tend to really complain of more of the headache because the neck stiffness doesn't bother them as much, or they feel like I've always had a stiff neck and it's really never affected me in terms of having a headache. Uh, but then when they finally kind of get over that threshold where it really starts to affect those tiny little nerves that are in the back of their head and, and kind of transmits those headaches, uh, these patients start to find that they have what, what they think is a migraine, but really is a cervicogenic type headache. So what can you do for a cervicogenic headache interventionally? So depending on the place where you have the pain, whether, excuse me, where the etiologies or the cause, uh, we can do actually trigger point injections specifically at the muscle. If the muscle is causing spasm over the nerves themselves, causing these headaches, or we can do what's called an occipital block, which is a injection right at the back of the neck. And it's it's basically a numbing medicine and a steroid that helps to try and reduce some of the inflammation that could be irritating these nerves. Do you ever inject the the neck area itself rather than sort of the, the back of the head to help that other than other than the muscles, I mean? Yes. Yeah, so we go down to basically the source of where that pain can be coming from along the neck. We're basically at the spine in order to try and reduce any of the inflammation or the irritation of those nerves. And this also helps in the long term to be able to do some of those, some of the non-interventional uh, uh, ways of trying to treat this pain, which are things like physical therapy. You know, a lot of times physical therapy can be our greatest asset in order to try and really in the long term fix some of these issues. But if you're having so much pain that you can't participate with physical therapy, these injections can be really helpful for you to be able to, to do those things so that you can heal and become better. I totally agree with that. I think, I think a collaborative effort like that is really key for a lot of patients because obviously if you're in so much pain, you can't do physical therapy, you're not going to get as much out of something like physical therapy. So oftentimes for patients, like I'll recommend they do both in conjunction, like they get the injections to help them get through physical therapy, but get the physical therapy done so that they don't have to keep coming back for injections because they can work on the issue themselves, strengthen, strengthen or relax depending on the issue, their muscles um, and their joints so that they can, you know, not have to keep coming back for more and more injections in the future, especially because a lot of these patients are younger. Yeah, and that's a, that's a common issue that I notice, and I, I have this conversation with a lot of my patients that, you know, uh, you're, you may have a little more pain until you get better when it comes to the physical therapy, because it's kind of like going to the gym, you know, you're working out those muscles, and especially if those muscles are very tense over the nerve, you can, you know, make it a little bit worse. And so what the injections are there for is to hopefully try and reduce some of that pain so that you can work with the physical therapist and really strengthen those muscles and improve your flexibility of those muscles so that you can kind of begin the healing process. So patients, it's been going on for so long that they really do need an intervention in order for them to uh, be able to participate. And, and like I said, or like you said very well, you know, it's, it's something that if you uh, need it, it's there to, to be able to kind of supplement or help you to get through those tougher times in the beginning of physical therapy. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about the face. So, you know, with these, uh, with these younger women patients, um, 
Is there anything you see as far as the face? I mean, I know that, you know, and I've had this happen to myself where I have definitely developed a little bit of TMJ, the temporomandibular joint dysfunction, just from stress in the past. And so I feel like this is something that I've seen and heard of being pretty common amongst young women. Do you find that? Yeah. And jaw pain is a very, very common issue that we see amongst young women. Uh, about one in three young women do have some degree of TMJ dysfunction, whether it, it's something that needs any kind of intervention. I'd say it really depends on how long it's been going on, how much it really impacts your quality of life. Uh, and if it really does interfere with your day-to-day -day activity where, for instance, you can't sleep, you're unable to chew, you're unable to do anything uh, that, that uh, in terms of talking, you know, I have a lot of patients who are public speakers who tell me that their TMJ dysfunction uh, and really affects the, their ability to speak for a prolonged period of time. And, and these are things that, uh, you know, especially with all of us having very high stress jobs, stress and anxiety can actually add to TMJ dysfunction, especially uh, when it comes to a lot of the clenching and grinding that we're starting to see more and more uh, as uh, some of these patients are, are doing, like I said, very high stress jobs uh, and having less time to really uh, relax at the end of the day and to allow their, their muscles to relax. And so it's becoming more and more common that we're needing to do interventions for some of these patients in order for them to be able to improve their quality of life and, and continue to do their day-to-day -day at their at their peak. So, you know, obviously with all of these things, we're going to try to maximize not doing injections um, and kind of maximize some of the conservative therapy as much as possible. But if they do need interventions, what can be done for this kind of jaw pain? So depending on the underlying uh, issue of the jaw pain, you know, if it's truly at the TMJ and there's a lot of inflammation at the TMJ, uh, then doing a steroid injection or putting a gel inside there, something that allows some of that pain to, to uh, reduce quite a bit uh, or to allow you to have less sensation of the pain really is a first step. Uh, but we can also do Botox injections if the underlying issue is not at the, at the joint itself but it's that the muscles are so tight. You know, there's a lot of patients that I see uh, that they have these very, very tense muscles uh, to the point of spasm. And sometimes the patients will not even, uh, will not appreciate that they're having a spasm, uh, but they just feel like it's so tight that it feels like a rock. Uh, and it can be very, very painful. Uh, and it can really, like I said, interfere with both their sleep. Well, and they, they'd be telling me that they wake up after two hours feeling that they have such uh, uh, tension just inside their cheeks uh, because of one of the smaller muscles that allows us to, to kind of move around our jaw. And so really, depending on the underlying uh, uh, problem or the issue that's going on, you know, we can do Botox injections. We can do these injections into the joint itself of the jaw, uh, as well as some of the, the uh, other, like I said, non-interventional methods as well. Thank you. Absolutely. Just for our listeners, um, the gel that you're referring to is an injection inside the joint itself. And we do use gel for a lot of different parts of the body. The, the sort of the fancy word for it is for our listeners is viscosupplementation, but essentially it just means putting a little bit of almost like fake cartilage into the joint to kind of cushion it better. So that's a good way of sort of um, avoiding or not necessarily repeating injections that involve steroid, but rather something that's a little bit quote unquote cleaner, if you want to call it that, 
than that. And that's a good option um, for patients where the steroid injection either hasn't been enough or it's just not lasting for a longer amount of time. Um, but moving on to our older patient population. So in terms of, again, let's focus on uh, women for the time being, in terms of like sort of an older women patient population, do you find the same sort of issues uh, or do you find that there might be anything different that's you know, seen more commonly amongst older women? You know, you do have a lot of headaches amongst older women, but a lot of the issues as we get older tend to come more from the spine than they do from, uh, you know, just migraines or having a family history of migraines. Uh, and a lot of these patients may have headaches. You know, one, something that's common amongst older women or seems to have a, a, a you know, is not common, but is just more common amongst older women is something called trigeminal neuralgia, uh, which is a... Uh, uh, a nerve pain that affects the face and can be very, very debilitating. Absolutely. I mean, um, uh, I feel like the times when I've seen patients with trigeminal neuralgia or that have it, it's it's like shock-like sensations. They can't even touch their face. They can't shower. I, I'm going to assume during COVID, probably very difficult to put a mask on just because of how debilitating this can be. Um, I know there's a lot of medications and everything for trigeminal neuralgia, but as far as injections go, what, what can be done for it? So it's a great question. And something that uh, we do is steroid injections initially at the area, if there is an inflammatory, you know, tri uh, inflammatory aspect to it, meaning there's a lot of inflammation around the nerve. Uh, a lot of patients that I see tend to have an improvement from some of these injections, but there are also you know, patients who don't respond to some of these injections. And something that I do that uh, not many practitioners do is something called an ablation of the nerve. Uh, and that basically allows the patient uh, to have a, a semi-permanent burn of the nerve, which allows the nerve to be uh, kind of, in a way, cut for about eight months to a year until the nerve regrows. Uh, and that allows the patient a quality of life that they are unable to have when they are in these active flares of trigeminal neuralgia. Uh, like you said, you know, some patients, it's so uh, it happens so often that they can barely talk, they barely eat. You know, patients who uh, are unable to tolerate even the uh, a touching of their face or brushing of the wind against their face. And so, uh, some of the options that we offer, like I said, we don't take very lightly, and they're offered to patients in order to give them their life back. Absolutely, and I know that there are also nerve stimulator type devices that can be placed for a variety of these pains, including trigeminal neuralgia. Um, what do you think about those? I think there's a place for them for sure. And there are some patients who unfortunately don't respond to some of these more traditional injections and ablations that we do. And so for patients who, like I said, uh, have a poor quality of life and are unable to perform these very routine tasks that you and I take very granted, you know, if this is something that we cannot improve and medications, like you said, aren't working either, then I think that doing these uh, stimulator or, or implanting some of these stimulators may actually be a, a life-saving uh, technique for them. Absolutely. Um, I, I think, you know, it's, it's obviously very patient dependent, but for some, ref some types of refractory pain where really nothing is lasting, I think stimulators can be a great option, but it can be very scary, very intimidating to have something like a device placed. So there it's, you know, it's very much a individualized 
learn all the risk benefits type of a situation, but it can be extremely helpful. We actually have an entire episode in season three on nerve stimulators. So for our listeners, you can definitely check that out for more information. Um, let's move on to talk a little bit about our male patients. So do you find similar sort of headache pa- pattern amongst male patients or anything different? Uh, amongst the younger uh, men, I do see a lot of uh, what we discussed before with younger women about cervicogenic headache. And, and this could also be, you know, a lot of the patients I see tend to work 10 to 12 hours at a computer or on their phone. Uh, and they have very similar uh, headache uh, headaches that kind of start in the neck, that cervicogenic headache we talked about. Uh, and you know they've kind of seen multiple doctors, and you know finally when we do the intervention after they've done all those conservative measures, uh, they tend to do really well. Uh, and these patients are great candidates for what we discussed before about doing physical therapy to improve both their posture, their neck strengthening and mobility, uh, and doing injections to allow them to still be able to you know go to work, work there 12 hours, and still kind of get on that that, that path to healing. Uh, with our older patients, uh, we do have a lot of issues that really start at the, the, the spine or what's called the cervical spine or the neck. Uh, and these issues tend to be uh, headache syndromes that the patients also end up going and seeing a whole bunch of doctors that, that try to find a headache syndrome specifically. Uh, but then after doing uh, some imaging, we find out that they actually have an issue at the level of the neck. And so we're able to do uh, procedures on the spine in order to try and relieve some of those headaches. Some of the younger patients that we see have something called a cluster headache, which is described as clusters because it occurs uh, over, let's say, a month or two and then goes away for a while. Uh, It occurs usually on one side of the head, sometimes behind the eye, and can be very severe and debilitating. Uh, The treatment options for cluster headache uh, can be as straightforward is something like putting on some oxygen for them in the emergency room, uh, or even putting some uh, numbing medicine at the end of a cotton swab and kind of gently putting it uh, up one of their nostrils. Uh, there are some other injections that we can do if, if, if the cluster headache doesn't respond to these that seem to be very helpful uh, and last for the duration of the cluster headaches, which like I said, can sometimes be for a month or two months. It's great that for something like cluster headaches, there does exist a procedure, like you said, with the cotton swab. That's not actually an injection. It's just, you know, a cotton swab dipped with a lot of numbing medication and gently inserted into your nostril. And that can help take away the pain to where you may not even need anything more procedural as far as like an actual injection goes. Um, So that's like, a, a nice, a nice option. Um, and, and I, and I like that, you know, that that's something that can absolutely be tried before resorting to any kind of actual injection or ablation type of procedure. Now, lastly, I, I do want to ask about pelvic pain. So, you know, I don't know if you've noticed this too, but I feel like so many of my patients that have pelvic pain, um, also have head and neck pain they have migraines or they have, you know, neck pain, cervicogenic headaches. And, you know, and I find this to be very true amongst a lot of the women patients with pelvic pain. And I've also noticed that a lot of the women patients with pelvic pain that also have head and neck pain, it's like you treat the pelvis and the neck feels better and you 
and you treat the neck and the pelvis can also feel better. And I feel like there's got to be a link there. I don't think research has really figured out what that link is, what, you know, nerve endings or receptors, what might be involved, but I feel like there's got to be a link there. Have you found, have you found that to be true from your end, as far as the head and neck patients in terms of pelvic pain? So absolutely. I think that there's uh, a lot of these disorders that seem to be connected, uh, including some of the uh, inflammatory disorders like IBS, uh, like migraines. Uh, and, you know, there's not very much research to support why it's happening, but it definitely is a pattern that we're noticing amongst these patients. Uh, and it's something that, you know, the patients, like you said, when we treat their migraine, they somehow, one of their other issues seem to be resolved or seems to be improved. Uh, so it's not clear why that why this is happening, but it is something that I think a lot of practitioners are noticing. Uh, and it's, it's something that unfortunately, a lot of these patients are having to see multiple providers. And so something that I think is really great uh, amongst this multidisciplinary approach is that patients are able to get uh, a lot of, uh, you know, the attention they need from the different people to kind of piece everything together and make sure that they're able to kind of cover all bases so that they can get onto the road to recovery. Absolutely. And, you know, I agree that I feel like a lot of these patients do um, have, you know, in addition to the pelvic pain and neck pain, they'll also have inflammatory bowel disorders. They'll also have fibromyalgia. They can also have allostanlos. Like they can have a various various other disease processes or syndromes that are going on in conjunction. Um, and it is more commonly seen in women that link. And so I, I definitely think research has a little way to go to kind of establish that more to be able to get these patients the help that they need. But, you know, I'm glad that more and more practitioners are noticing that there is, there is a link so that it can be, you know, treated uh, and at least like something can be started, some help can be, can be given at least while we're still working on figuring out the underlying causes. So with that, you know, this has been a wonderful discussion. Um, any sort of last minute thoughts for our patients and for our listeners? You know, I, I know this, this talk is really about interventions, but I really think it's important that, you know, listeners understand that a lot of these issues, it's very important to start with conservative measures and really looking at, you know, we talked about triggers for, let's say, migraine or triggers for certain issues and really trying to use non-interventional uh, methods to try and reduce some of this pain before uh, going towards interventional ones. You know, a lot of my practice focuses on really trying to improve a patient's quality of life. And so going towards an intervention is really looking at the entire picture of the patient and really individualizing uh, the treatment to each patient and making sure that we're, you know, we're, we're asking ourselves, if we're going to do this intervention, what are we trying to accomplish? You know, migraine patients who are, you know, cannot, are disabled from it and they cannot even, you know, participate in work or they're taking off so many days from work that's really interfering with their life. You know, that's the time when I say, okay, you know, this patient really needs something to get their life back. Uh, and I think it's really important for us to, to understand that it's not just us. There's a whole team that we have that really works to, to try and get the patient back on their feet. And so every member of that team, whether it's, like I said, the physical therapists who I think are very underrated and those guys and, and gals, they, they are, are wonderful. They really, I think in terms of long-term improvement for some of these issues, they can really get a patient uh, back onto their feet. Uh, and so I think 
making sure we understand that and, and to, to uh, have patients realize that, you know, coming to see us, we're going to try and get you kind of plugged into all those people. I think that's a very important uh, first step before we go towards any intervention. Absolutely. Um, completely agree. I think I think in medicine in general, a collaborative effort is very much needed, but especially with pain syndromes, you know, it's not, it's very rarely just a one and done, see one person and then issues resolved and then you're done. Um, that's great when that happens, but, you know, most of the time to be able to really effectively treat someone, you do absolutely need that collaborative effort. Um, well, thank you very much for joining us. It has been a fantastic discussion. Uh, and to our listeners, thank you for listening in and we will see you all next time. Thank you so much for having me. We would love to hear your thoughts. Visit our Instagram at the female pain docs for more content. Send us an email at the female pain docs at Gmail. If you have any topics in particular, you would like us to discuss. You can also visit our website at www.thefemalepaindocs.com. See you next time.